Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. This is one of those chapters where the signs and symbols just seem to be very clear, very precise, and, um, and so you really can grab hold of this, of this portion. But now, but just before we read uh, what's going on here, remember when we come into uh, chapter 11, the focus of attention now is on the Jewish people in the end times, the Jewish people during that period of tribulation. So that in chapter 11, you'll remember at the very front end of that passage that John was told to measure the temple, but not to, mention, not to measure the outer court. Now, the reason he was to measure the temple is because now God's program is going to shift its focus back on the Jewish people. The temple is to be measured because now God is going to sustain his faithful remnant, the worshipers who are gathered in the temple, as you read those early uh, verses, chapter 11, verses 1 or 2 or so. He's told not to measure the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles, because Jerusalem is going to be trampled down by the Gentiles for some three and a half years. Remember, the last period of tribulation is a seven-year period. It's divided in half. The first three and a half years is a relative period of peace. The second three and a half years is a time of intense trial and tribulation that leads to the return of Messiah. So during this tribulation period, we're going to see that the Jewish people in the latter half will be particularly the targets of the false Messiah and the objects of his persecution. So here in chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple because even though the Jewish people will be the objects of the hatred of the false Messiah, nevertheless, what will transpire is God will be faithful to his remnant and will sustain them during this period of time. And so we're told in the book of Zechariah that of the nation, two-thirds will be cut off, will die, Two-thirds of the entire Jewish people will be refined as gold and silver is refined. One-third, this faithful remnant, will endure that period of tribulation because of God's faithfulness in sustaining them. Now, Revelation chapter 12 is going to tell us more about that dynamic. Then after John is told to measure the temple in chapter 11, we're told about these two witnesses that are sent to the city of Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And so these witnesses will bear testimony of the Messiah to the Jewish people. Again, the focus is on the Jewish people. 
We're told that these two witnesses are, uh, some are responding to them, but at the end of their three and a half year ministry, the uh, unbelievers rise up against these two witnesses and kill them and leave their bodies in the streets for three and a half days. Then we're told that the Spirit of God enters into their bodies and they are resurrected and they ascend into heaven. We're told as a result of their resurrection, a host of God's people, his Jewish people, come to faith through the sign of resurrection. And we talked about that last week, that the sign, or the week before, the sign of, to the Jewish people is the sign of resurrection, which is given on three different occasions. You see it in the resurrection of Lazarus, you see it in the resurrection of Yeshua, and now you see it in the resurrection of these two witnesses. Now, at the close of chapter 11, we're told that the judgment of God begins to be poured out as heaven is opened, and John sees into the very temple of God. He sees the ark of the covenant, and then he sees flashes of lightning and hears peals of thunder, and the judgment of God, again, is about to be poured out on the world. Now, in chapter 12, after John sees these images, we're told he then sees a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Now let's stop there for a moment. We may not be able to complete the entire chapter this morning, but we want to look at least these verses that we just read. First of all, notice as John is having all of this revelation given to him, he then sees a sign in the heavens. And he actually sees two signs. If you look at verse 1, he sees a great sign appeared in the heavens. And then in verse 3, then another sign appeared in the heavens. Now, John, interestingly enough, uses this word sign in a unique way. In his gospel account, his good news record of the coming of Messiah, he speaks of seven sign miracles that Messiah performs that demonstrates his Messiahship. The Greek word here is simeon. It's the word for sign that indicates something unique, special, and above and beyond what we might normally expect. So John here now says he sees a sign. It's meant to tell us we need to focus our attention particularly carefully on these two signs because they have significance in the entirety of what the book of Revelation is about. And so he's telling us this first sign that appears in heaven is a sign of a woman clothed with the sun, moon, and the stars. 
Now, one of the rules of interpretation, especially with the book of Revelation, is to look for these signs and symbols because there are myriads of them throughout the book of Revelation. We need to look for the meaning of these signs and symbols in the scriptures itself, and particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, because 95% of the book of Revelation is the Hebrew scriptures and the prophetic word that is proclaimed to us therein. So what is this woman with the sun, moon, and the stars? In the Hebrew scriptures, if you were to look in Genesis chapter 37, you'll remember that Jacob's son, Joseph, was a, quote-unquote, a dreamer. And the dreams that he dreamed or dreamt were dreams that the Lord had given to him. And on one occasion, he saw the sun and the moon bow down to him, and 11 stars bow down to him. His brothers were very angry. You remember that? His brothers were really angry over this because they felt that he was being self-absorbed, selfish, and prideful. To think, as they said, that the sun, the moon, representing his mother and father, Jacob and Rachel, would be bowing down to him, and that the 11 stars, his brothers, would be bowing down to him as well. But indeed, that is exactly what does happen. You remember, because after the brothers sold to him into slavery, he was taken by the Midianites and the Ishmaelites over to Egypt, and he was placed in Potiphar's home. He served Potiphar, but his wife attempted, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him, and as a consequence, he got thrown into prison. He spends about two years in prison, and it's there that he's able to interpret the dreams of the baker, right, and the wine tester. And what we learn is that the wine tester, after this dream that they had that Joseph interprets, we learn that the wine tester was restored to his position in in Egypt, whereas the baker was executed. As a consequence, Joseph was freed from prison and was uh, given status to serve Pharaoh as second in Egypt. The symbol of the, the woman with the sun, the moon, and the stars is a symbol of Israel. This is the Jewish people. Remember, Rachel is Joseph's mother. He's the one that saw these images. And Rachel becomes in Scripture a sign and symbol for Jewish motherhood. You see this in Matthew chapter 2, and you see it again in Jeremiah. But in any case, the sun, the moon, and the stars are representative of Jacob and his 12 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the Jewish people. Now, it has to be the Jewish people, even if we didn't understand those symbols, because look further at what John tells us. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And notice, when she's about to give birth, she gives birth, looking down at verse 5, to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Well, this male child, and by the way, the Greek is very specific. It doesn't, it doesn't just say a child, but a male. Literally, that's what it says, a male. And that this male would rule with a rod of iron. Now, that's out of the Hebrew Scriptures, too. So if you keep your finger in Revelation chapter 12 and turn back to the Psalms. And we don't have to go far into the Psalms, but if you go to the second Psalm, we find that in Psalm 2... In Psalm 2, this David writes, 
David writes, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? This is such a great psalm. It divides up so beautifully. The first three, sir, uh, the first three verses are about the nations. The next set of three verses is about the Lord in the heavens. The next three set of verses is about the Messiah. And the last three verses is about our response to him. So now look at verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations, it's about the nations, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So the first three verses are about the nations in rebellion against God. And they want to throw off the shackles, as they refer to them, of God that they feel are constraining them and are ruling over them. And so they're crying out. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's what it means, anointed. Mashiach, against his Messiah, against his anointed one. Who is the anointed one, the Messiah, who is the king. And they say, we want nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, these are the nations. These are the Gentiles. We want nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or their Messiah. And so they conspire together. This may very well be looking to the very end times when all the nations of the world conspire together against the Lord, his program, against Messiah, his coming, and against his people. And so they conspire together. Now look at verses 4, 5, and 6. But how does God respond? The focus now is on the Lord, the one enthroned in heaven. What does he do? Does he get, get, does he get concerned? Is he uh, in consternation and anxiety over this? No, it says the Lord laughs. It says the Lord scoffs at them. Further, he rebukes them and he terrifies them. And despite their desire to cast off God's control over them, he says, I have installed my king. This is the Messiah, the anointed one spoken of in verse 2. I have installed my king. And notice it's already in the past tense. King hasn't yet been installed on Zion, on my holy hill. That's Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. But David writes of this as if it's already done because he's so certain it's going to be done. In other words, he's saying this is a done deal. This has already happened, even though it hasn't yet, but it will. And therefore, I might as well speak of it as it having happened because it's so certain that it will happen. And so I will, the Lord says, install my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look at verse 7. Now the focus is on the Messiah. The Messiah says to the Lord, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This isn't the Lord speaking now. This is Messiah. He's saying, I'm going to proclaim the Lord's, the Lord's decree. He said to me, the Father said to the Son, the Father said to Messiah, He said to me, you are my Son. Now the Messiah is speaking. The nation spoke, verses 1 to 3. God the Father spoke in verses 4, 5, and 6. And now 7, 8, and 9, Messiah responds. And he says, I'm going to proclaim the Lord's decree. What is that decree? The decree is, you're my Son. And today I have become your father. Now, in some translations, it says, today I have begotten you. But the word begotten is a bad translation. The word means to establish him as king. That's why whenever you read of the word begotten in the New Testament, it's always in the context of the resurrection of Messiah. 
It's not about his birth. It's about his resurrection. And with the resurrection of Messiah will come his reign as king. Because if he just dies, he can't reign. How can he reign? He must be resurrected first, which he was three days after he died. And now he's at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that time when he will be called to return to this earth. He was asked, when would he return? He says, no man knows the day or the hour. The day will come. We are to be watching and waiting because no one knows when that day will come. But when it comes, he will be installed on as king on Mount Zion on God's holy hill. That's what this psalm is saying. And so he's proclaiming, Messiah's proclaiming the decree. God has anointed me as Messiah. God has established me as king. God has installed me to reign over my people and over the earth. And so he goes on to say, not only has God decreed that, but look at this. Verse 8, this is what God has already said. God said to me, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Isn't that interesting in light of Satan's temptation of Messiah? He says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But look what God says. God says, all you need to do, you don't have to do anything other than ask of me, and I will give you all the nations of the earth. That's why Messiah's response is, we are to worship the Lord and only him should we serve. And so one day the kingdoms will be given to him the day he asks for them. And he will ask for them when he returns in his glory. Now look what he goes on to say. Not only will he have the nations, but he says, you will break them. This is what God decreed. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then how are we to respond just very quickly? We are, look at verse 12, we're to kiss the Son. We're to bow before the Son. We're to worship the Son. We're to acknowledge Him for who He is. Therefore, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. But the key phrase we want to look at is in verse 9. You will break them with a rod of iron. Now, I ask you to keep your finger back in Revelation chapter 12. Now, look again. The woman that has... is imaged with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars is the one that gives birth to a male. I think the reason they're talking about male is because this is the Messiah of Israel. And he has to be the Messiah because what did we just read? Verse 5, she gave birth to a son who will rule all the nations. Remember what Psalm 2 said, ask of me, I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance because he will rule all the nations with what? An iron scepter. So the one that's spoken of in Psalm 2 is the one that's being spoken of here. So now the question is, who gave birth to Messiah? Israel, right? That's the whole point of the Hebrew Scriptures. The central theme of the Bible is the coming of Messiah. He's the one that can set all things right. Genesis 3.15, the seed of a woman will come and crush the serpent's head. Everything about the scripture is to help us understand who the Messiah would be when he would come. And one of the means by which he would come is that he had to be born. He's the seed of a woman, had to be born. In order to be a seed of a woman, he had to be a man. In order to be the seed of a woman, he had to be born, he had to be a man. Now the question is, who would he be born through? And in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not only did he have to be a man, not only did he have to be born, he had to be born through Israel. He had to be born through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why he's called the son of David. 
That's why he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He had to be a Jew. Therefore, the woman in this passage has to be the symbol of Israel who gives birth to Messiah. And she gives birth to Messiah in great pain and anguish during the time of the Roman oppression over the people of Israel. And when he comes the second time to reign, although that's not what this passage is about, but when he comes a second time to reign, it will also be during a time of great pain and sorrow for the Jewish people once again. Messiah comes to his people and to the world through Israel and through time of suffering and a time of pain. Now look at chapter 12 again. Let's go back. She was pregnant. She cried out. But then as she's about to give birth, verse 3, another sign appears in heaven. Another important image we need to get straight in order to understand the book of Revelation, but I would say in order to understand the full scope of history. Because in verse 3, this other sign appears as an enormous red dragon. Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. By the way, this is the way that the false Messiah, the Antichrist, is also described as we will see in chapter 13. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But here we know that its tail swept a third of the stars. Now in the book of Revelation, and for the most part throughout the scripture, stars are angels. We saw that already earlier on in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. It's saying that his tail swept a third of the stars, the angels, and flung them to the earth. Now, this is very interesting because John is seeing things, right? He's given revelation of Messiah. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's a revelation of Messiah and his coming. In this revelation, he's now being told of something to happen in the future, while at the same time being told of things in the past. So he's being told, as we get to the end of this chapter, about events of the future that will unfold with regard to Israel with the return of Messiah. At the same time, it looks to the past with how Messiah was born. We just saw that. That during a time of pain, the woman Israel gives birth, brings forth the Messiah. And that's what the gospel records, at least in Matthew and Luke, tell us about his birth. But now we're even pushed back further into the past. And now look what we're being told. We're tolding of a time when this dragon in, this, in the heavens had flung to the earth one-third of the angels in the sky. In verse 4, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth. Now the dragon is a symbol of Satan. Of course, in Revelation chapter 20, he is so described as the dragon. He's also described as Satan. He's also spoken of as the serpent. He's also spoken of as a murderer, Revelation 20. So here, the dragon is Satan. We're told that later when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. We're told that he's cast down one-third of the angels. That he did before the creation of the world. And that's why we have demonic forces. These demonic forces were at one time angels, like all other angels, such as Michael, Gabriel, two angels that are named, and all the other good angels. But at one point, they joined with Satan, rebelled against God, and were cast out of God's presence, as it were, in their fall from a relationship with God. As a consequence, these third became fallen angels, or demons. 
So now we know of how demons came into being. They came into being as such by virtue of their rebelliousness and their alliance with the dragon. But now look what it goes on to say. His tail swept, and then all of a sudden the woman or the dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth. Now we're pushed into the future a little bit at the time of Messiah's coming so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So now we get this image that the evil one who had brought down one-third of the angels is now poised to destroy the the man-child, the male, the Messiah, who is being born. So now we know that Satan's entire desire during the earthly ministry of Messiah was to destroy him, was to kill him. And so we read of the temptations, which was a desire to destroy him. And throughout his life, there were various encounters that he had had with Messiah, uh, with the evil one, in an attempt to destroy him. Now look what it goes on to say. And, her, and this one, she gave birth to the son. We look at this Psalm 2, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, isn't that interesting? The text does not tell us about the death or burial or resurrection of Messiah. It goes from his birth to an attempt to, for the evil one to destroy him and then all the way right to the ascension. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is because the book of Revelation is about Messiah coming in glory, not about his past death, burial, and resurrection. It's about his future coming to reign as king. And so what John is seeing is that Messiah was pursued, but the pursuit failed, and Messiah was ascended into the very presence of God from which he will return to reign as king. That's what John wants to focus our attention on. He came into the world. He was pursued so as to be destroyed, but was not because he would complete his ministry and he was ascended up into the very presence of God only to return at a later time to reign. That's what John sees. He doesn't see the full scope of his atoning work Because John's focus is on him coming as king. Now, he made reference to it when when no one could open the seal. We're told that it was the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, because that he died for our sin, he was worthy to open the scroll. He's already told us that, but in this image, he's simply seeing Messiah coming into the world, being pursued and fulfilling his ministry, being ascended into the heavens, only to return at a later time to come as king. So what does the evil one then do? Look at verse, verse uh, 5 and 6. The woman then fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for the three and a half years. So this first half of chapter 11 then focuses our attention back on the woman. The woman is a symbol of Israel. And Israel now is being seen as pursued by the evil one. Because the evil one could not destroy the Messiah, the king of the Jews, he then turns his attention to destroy the Jews. What this tells us in broader terms is that the full scope of history, world events can be understood 
from what is being presented to us right here. The evil one, the devil, the dragon, is in war with God. And the way that he wages war with God is to destroy Messiah or an attempt to destroy Messiah or an attempt to destroy Messiah's people, the Jews. That is what world history is about. And all one needs to do, it's not the only thing it's about, but that's the heart and soul of reality. There are spiritual forces that are at war with God. And their war with God is focused on Messiah. And where they fail to achieve their purposes with Messiah, they will attempt to achieve them against Messiah's people, the Jews. But God has already set the decree. Psalm 2 that the Lord would reign over his people from Mount Zion, Mount Zion, on the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, on his holy hill. So he will preserve his people, and that's why in Revelation 12 it says, they went into the wilderness where the Lord has preserved or prepared a place for them. Now, as we'll see next time, not next two weeks, but in three weeks from now, We will see exactly where it is in the wilderness that the Jewish people will be, or the remnant of Israel will be preserved from the onslaught of the false Messiah, whose goal is to do the working of the evil one. And the working of the evil one is to destroy the Jews. And so Revelation now focuses our attention on what the heart and soul, not only of history, but of the the book of Revelation and the return of Messiah is about. It's a war against the Jews. And so in Revelation chapter 11, remember what we saw? Measure the temple, which represented the faithful remnant of Israel. Don't measure the outer gate, outer court, because the the Gentile nations will trample down Jerusalem. Then the witnesses are sent to Israel, Jerusalem, in Revelation 11. And now in Revelation 12, we're getting a broader understanding. In these latter days... Because the devil now knows he only has but a short time, he will set all his energy to destroy God's chosen people. And God now will work in defending his people. There'll be great cost, there'll be great loss. But at the end, when Messiah returns, the kingdom will be established, his people will be serving under their king who will reign from one end of the earth to the other. But today, especially those of you watching online and anyone here in this morning, you know, we need to know that we are in a battle. But the Lord loves us. And he has loved us so much that he sent his son into the world that he would give his life for us. Just as Messiah came and was sustained, even though he was pursued and he was snatched up to heaven and brought into the presence of God, you know, that's our destiny as well. Though we may be pursued by the enemy of our souls, and though we may be pursued by sin, for the wages of sin is death, the Lord has sent his Son, who provided atonement for us, that if we embrace him and we acknowledge what he has done for us, we too, like Messiah, will be brought up into the very presence of God one day, and we will be with him forever. And so it is incumbent upon each and every one of us that we turn our hearts to Messiah who's given his life a ransom for many. Indeed, he's given his life a ransom for you. Remember what we read this morning, and I'm going to close with this. If you remember what I shared with you from uh, John's letter, 
in 1 John. Remember, this is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah laid down his life for us. He goes on to say, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what's going on here in the book of Revelation with respect to the the challenges and the conflict that ensues. But we can receive what the Lord has provided for us and in thereby receiving, experiencing the full love and acceptance and redemption and grace of God. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning of worship and praise and learning from your word. We pray, Father, that you would open all of our hearts to your great love for us. And so, Father, I pray for anyone in this room and anyone watching online that if anyone has never received you as Messiah, they would do so even now. It's a very simple thing. It's simply saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin and accept me as your child. And so I pray, Lord, that you might move on the hearts and minds of those who are hearing your word. And I pray that in hearing it, they may may be moved to respond to it. Lord, we would also be mindful, given the context of this passage, we would be mindful to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, that you would open hearts of many Jewish people to experience the full peace that comes by knowing Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. We pray, Father, for the nations of the world. We pray, Lord, that you might move on their hearts, that they would not become allies of the evil one in hatred for you or your people. But, Father, that you would break through and cause many of the Gentile peoples to come to know you as Messiah as well. Help us here at Beth Ariel. Help the various Messianic ministries around the world. Help churches that genuinely proclaim the truth of Messiah. Help each and every one of us to make the difference in our own particular corner of the earth. May we be faithful in going into all the world and proclaiming the good news of Messiah, our Lord and Savior. And so, Father, we would pray that as such they would experience your great love and your mercy. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.